Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, a history of civilization in blood and brick with historian David Fry and his book Walls. David Fry is a professor and historian whose research has taken him around the world and involved him in numerous archaeological digs since receiving his PhD from Duke University. He has published extensively in international academic journals, and David is now the author of a book, Walls, A History of Civilization in Blood and Brick. David, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you, Neil. What's the idea behind Walls? Well, the idea behind the, the book is that it actually uh, hadn't been done yet. You know, there, there are people that had written about modern borders and, you know, a handful of the better known walls, obviously Hadrian's Wall in England. And there were works on uh, the Great Wall of China and some of its predecessors. But no one had ever written a global history of walls and, uh, you know, as it turns out, they are a global phenomenon. And I don't mean just today. Uh, they always have been. And um, whether we're talking about city walls or border walls, uh, you find them across uh, Europe and Asia. Uh, and you find them in North Africa, uh, Central and South America. So uh, most every continent uh, was given to wall building at one time or another. And it occurred to me that that might be uh, a very important thing that, you know, uh, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people had lived behind walls and that tens of millions of people at the very least had helped construct those walls. But um, very little attention had ever been paid to it. And so, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, the idea behind the book was to look into that and find out, you know, uh, how did these walls help shape history or did they? And the subtitle of the book is A History of Civilization in Blood and Brick. And, you know, the idea of civilization obviously crops up a lot through it. And so we have this sort of divide between people who are living behind walls and people who live outside the walls. And the people that are living behind the walls are basically hiding from the people on the outside. So let's talk about first who those people are, because obviously they're also people. The word civilization, obviously, is is referring to the you know the city states that sort of grew up who was outside 
Okay, well, in the book, I talk about Wallers and Warriors. Um, uh, the Wallers being uh, the, the people you were referring to as the insiders in uh, you know, the city-states. The Warriors were altogether uh, different from them. These were societies where there were no civilian occupations, and uh, there was no concept of civilian in general. Every man was a warrior. Uh, the measure of a man was his skill in battle. And it seems that that sort of society was required in a world which faced constant insecurity, uh, that uh, the men were the only defense for those communities. And so they didn't apply themselves to other things. They didn't become workers. They didn't become writers and philosophers and mathematicians. They became soldiers. And in many of those societies, there wasn't even a word for soldier. Uh, the word for man sufficed uh, because it went without saying that every boy from a, a very young age was trained to withstand pain, uh, trained to uh, endure frightening conditions, trained to be able to uh, to fight with weapons. So that was uh, especially, uh, I would say, in Eurasia, that was the nature of the, the sort of societies that existed outside the, the walled world of the city-states. And those people, I mean in a lot of cases, obviously had chosen to pursue that type of lifestyle. Obviously, within the cities, there was stratification of classes. Obviously, there was somebody who ran the place and there was slaves, you know, but the people on the outside were not just people that had been barred from civilization. They had, to some extent, chosen to pursue that nomadic lifestyle. How did that divergence happen, do you think? Well, and and I, and I would say chose to maintain that lifestyle for a very long time. You know, if you, in particular, in the case of the uh, equestrian uh, nomadic societies of the Eurasian steppe, um, this proved to be um, a lifestyle that was um, apparently uniquely satisfactory to people such as the Huns and the Mongols. Uh, the Turks and all the various subdivisions of those groups, so that you know they they that lifestyle went unchanged for uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, actually, which put it in stark contrast again uh, with the world of uh, you know uh, the city states. Let's talk about the first walls then. So at this point, where people start to settle down in the first city is around Mesopotamia. You paint this vivid picture of these people frantically knowing that there's this this sort of danger from the outside, from the from the barbarians that are always at the gate, and frantically building and rebuilding walls out of mud, almost pointlessly because they just erode away anytime you know when there's a seasonal rain, the floods blow these walls away. Tell us about the first time these sort of defensive walls appear. Well, there were two types of defensive uh, walls. There were the city walls. And then um, ultimately, there were also border walls. The city walls are much older. And the first instance we know of city walls are, are, are nearly 12,000 years uh, ago. And that was in the city of Jericho, which would be in uh, the modern country of Jordan. As far as border walls go, now they come much later. Um, there's some evidence for a third millennium BC border wall in Syria, but uh, the the earliest border wall that 
you know, our, our literary sources attest to and that, you know, we're, we're fairly certain about uh, when it happened was one built in the kingdom of Ur by a king named Shulgi uh, around 2000 BC. We've mentioned this division between the people who choose to live behind the walls, choose to live in some sort of civilization, and those who make the explicit decision to live the warrior lifestyle outside. And there are many places where this is more explicit than in Greece between the, the Greeks and the Spartans. Tell us about the, the Spartan ideal. The Spartans were very nearly unique in the ancient world. You know, uh, in antiquity, a city was a thing with walls. And, and, and in fact, you find that uh, in Greece, but you also find that in China and Egypt. You know, in, in Egypt, the hieroglyphic symbol for a, a wall, I mean, for a city, was a, uh, um, a wall with a crossroads inside. The Spartans refused to wall their city, and it was a matter of principle for them. They felt that walls, and in fact, the, the sort of civilized lifestyle that flourished inside walls, they felt that that sapped them of, their, or would sap them of their virility. And, and so, uh, you know, whenever a group of Spartan soldiers would be uh, marching past a, a walled city, they would look at it and sort of scoff, and they had this joke that they repeatedly made, you know, what sort of women live in there? Uh, referring not to the women inside the city, but to the men uh, who they felt had been made effeminate by a walled lifestyle. So the Spartans uh, refused to wall their city and instead uh, felt that they should be defended by walls of men. But in order to do that, they had to radically remake their society. They had to adopt something closer to the barbarian lifestyle where they rejected, you know, what they regarded as the luxuries and the, the superfluous arts of civilization and instead deliberately uh, lived a rougher lifestyle, you know, uh, wearing fewer clothes and, you know, uh, becoming uh, accustomed to uh, dark and cold and hunger and, uh, you know, uh, less fine foods and the like. And it was all part of this toughening process that enabled them to defend their city with walls of men. So uh, they really stood out in the Greek world uh, for that decision. Now, that being said, they were unusual in that they actually acted on that impulse the impulse itself or or the belief that uh, walls and civilization softened people didn't originate with the Spartans. It was a very old idea, uh, you know, and, and certainly you see traces of it in the Old Testament and you see it in the Gilgamesh epic. So what really made them stood out was being willing to walk the walk rather than merely talk the talk, as they say. All of these early societies, you know, the original civilization growing in the Fertile Crescent, the, the old cities in Mesopotamia, Greece, and indeed Rome, all have in common is their proximity to the enormous Eurasian steppe, which is this, you know, wasteland um, that's in the main occupied by these barbarian hordes. And, and right at the far side of that, as you've already have alluded to, is China. Now, we've everybody's heard of the you know the Great Wall, but the Great Wall is just one of many defensive walls that were built up over the years in China. What was earlier walls there like? So you know, wall building in China is is, is very old, as it is in other parts of the world. Um, you know, you uh, going back to the, the third millennium BC, uh, they're they're building walls even around their villages, and uh, these walls, which were made of tamped earth, could be as much as eighty feet wide. 
so, you know, 80 feet wide walls, Lord knows uh, what what's the, they expected to be used against them, uh, you know, at that time. But so city walls uh, were with the Chinese from the start. And uh, as early as 800 BC, we have sources indicating that the first border walls are being constructed by smaller Chinese states. Now, that's before there is a single Chinese state, and that China as um, an empire, as a single state, is formed in the late 3rd century BC, really, uh, by their first emperor. And uh, that is coincident with the building of the first of what you might call the Great Walls. In Chinese history, it's known as the Long Wall. Uh, and it was, you know, it was at least a thousand miles long and maybe as many as 6,000 miles long. And whereas we know that wall didn't last, it set a precedent for wall building that generations upon generations of Chinese emperors would follow. So, uh, it, you know, it was, it was a sort of the endless responsibility of peasants to uh, be working on these walls, something they very much resented. I have to say, you know, it, there's uh, folk songs and poems that record the opinions of the Chinese peasants who were being drafted uh, into these uh, forced labor corvées uh, to, to do all this work. And uh, I think they would rather have been uh, attacked by the barbarians in the end. I just wanted to talk about one figure in China at this time. That's uh, Zhang Chen, who basically is a person that, well, I guess discovered that there was, um, went off and journeyed into that great steppe and, and discovered that there was actually civilizations on the other side that were basically facing the same issues as, as those sort of Chinese civilizations were, and so opened up those empires to each other. Tell us more about who he was. Oh, okay, so uh, Zhang lived around 100 BC. So this was, uh, you know, the, the Chinese state was about a century old at the time, and certainly the Long Wall still existed. But the Long Wall had its limits, and so uh, he went venturing into some of the wastelands outside of China, and in particular into the uh, Taklamakan Desert. Taklamakan is a Turkish word meaning "go in and you won't come out." And, you know, I believe in India, they refer to it as uh, the great sand ocean. And, uh, you know, various languages have uh, names for this desert. None of them are particularly promising. But once he is able to, you know, uh, make it south of the desert, he discovers this, this world of cities that the Chinese never knew existed. And these would be what would become the Silk Road cities, uh, Tashkent, uh, Bukhara, uh, Samarkand. So, uh, you know, they've become very, uh, almost fabled in a way. But at the time, uh, it's stunning to the Chinese to discover that there's a world of people out there who uh, culturally are so much like them that, that they too uh, live behind walls and, you know, have these civilian economies. And so uh, when he finally is able to return home and, you know, report on his discoveries to the Emperor Wu, there's a tremendous amount of excitement. Oddly enough, some of that excitement has to do with the discovery of these horses that uh, allegedly sweat blood. 
and 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 apparently that's a real thing uh, that uh, you know those horses uh, actually existed or, or perhaps still do. And um, you know the desire to make contact with these people was so strong, though, that they ended up extending the long wall much further to the west, so that uh, travelers from China and uh, eventually even uh, armies from China, but you know uh, especially traders, would be able to you know make the trip to Central Asia without having to fear. The, the raves of the Huns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to David Fry. We're talking about his book, Walls, A History of Civilization in Blood and Brick. And David, I want to spend some time talking about the Romans and their changing attitudes over the years to defensive walls. Um, You mentioned... Hadrian's Wall, you, you've actually dug there yourself in your career, and it's, it's a place that I've, I've visited myself many times. I'm very familiar with some of the places that you've actually dug. Hadrian's Wall was one of many fortifications that the Emperor Hadrian built during his reign. Why was he so keen on the defensive walls? 
Uh, you know, the question of why is one I can't actually answer. You, you know, I, I try to be very careful as a historian not to, to leap too far into speculation. Uh, you know, uh, our, uh, our ancient biographies of, of Hadrian are sketchy at best. And so they don't give us, uh, you know, real insight into his thinking. But, you know, I can say that it, it does seem to have represented something of a change in Roman policy, that his immediate predecessor, the emperor Trajan, was uh, much more offensive minded. And, you know, when he had to, to deal with problems, you know, in, in Southeastern Europe, you know, he went on the offense into Dacia. And Hadrian's attitude was very different. And it's Hadrian that, you know, attempts to gird as much as the empire as he can with walls. Obviously, he does it most famously in England, but, you know, there are similar Hadrianic walls in North Africa and some evidence that he was perhaps doing some work in Southeast Europe and, and perhaps even Western Asia as well. You mentioned the finding at the um, Vindolanda forts by Hadrian's Wall um, in Northumberland of writing tablets, this famous find that basically gave us an insight, first of all, into the sort of people that were there manning the wall, but also what they thought about it. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. So so Vindolanda is a fort uh, found uh, near Hadrian's Wall, and it was originally uh, constructed and occupied uh, prior to the building of Hadrian's Wall. But then, uh, you know, it remained there for quite some time. In the early 1970s, uh, they first started discovering writing tablets there. And these were, you know, little slivers of wood upon which Roman soldiers had uh, written, in some cases, letters home, uh, in other cases, duty rosters uh, and, and things of that uh, sort in ink. And so uh, these have become invaluable, you know, in terms of uh, understanding the Roman frontier, because you know, as a historian, one of the frustrating things about, you know, exploring the past and, you know, especially, say, the Roman past is we know so much about the capital and the great cities like like Athens and Ephesus. But we know so little about the frontier because people out there uh, generally aren't writing the books and, you know, what they did write didn't survive. So this is a wonderful thing that we have these tablets. And it reveals to us a lot about, uh, I think, you know, not just life on the wall, but about, um, you know, again, going back to this question of the wallers and warriors. Um, the Romans have been a society of, of wallers for some time, even before the building of Hadrian's Wall, to the extent that, for example, Rome itself was uh, a walled city. And uh, like most walling peoples, they prefer not to fight their own battles. They prefer to hire outsiders uh, from warrior societies to uh, fight for them. And that's certainly the case of, of Vindolanda, where they have brought in uh, various foreign troops uh, from uh, Belgium and Holland to uh, Tungrians and Batavians to, uh, to help defend the wall. But it's interesting that, you know, they're hiring these individuals because, you know, they, they come from societies which it's, it's, it's more normal for, um, a, you know, a young man to uh, become a soldier or a mercenary. And yet they arrive at the wall and reading these letters, you can see they're already in the process of being changed that they're becoming used to a level of organization and, and having workloads put on them that, that never would have happened back in their homeland. 
but they're, you know, they're used to standing there and uh, for roll call and, you know, uh, being counted off for duty rosters. Uh, they're used to being assigned tasks like, um, you know, working in the quarry or, or, or whatnot. And these sorts of things would have been very new to them. So, it, you know, it's, it's part of the process of, of their transformation, I think. And I mean, I won't ask you whether or not this softening up behind the city walls, you know, directly contributed to the fall of Rome, because, you know, whole books could be written about that and no doubt have. But clearly we can see patterns developing between, you know, this time and the fall of Rome of, you know, a softening up and then a sacking and then a a new emperor who's more martial in their sort of ideas, the hiring again of mercenaries from the outside it just becomes repeated on and on yeah and you know and and oddly enough it doesn't even take us with you know to look at it retrospectively uh to to even uh speculate on on this you know what you're calling a softening up process Uh, you know uh, for the romans themselves uh recognized it and you know sometimes praised it and sometimes criticized it you know, uh, shortly after Hadrian, there is uh, an oration by a Roman named Aristides, and uh, he is speaking before the emperor Antoninus Pius, and he is celebrating the world of the empire. He's celebrating the world behind the walls, and he's saying it's become a kind of paradise because the Romans don't even remember what war was. They uh, have come to doubt that wars ever actually even happened. And instead, they have these carefree lives where they go to libraries and baths and gymnasiums. And he says it's all possible because we have these walls, which are defended far, far away by so many soldiers that, you know, an arrow couldn't even pass through them. So he's describing what you might call the softening up of of the empire but in a very positive way you know we're we're becoming more civilized and and you know we're enjoying life once the walls have failed or the borders uh, have been breached uh, by invaders you start to see different opinions on that and later in the book i talk for example about a bishop or named Synesius, unusual man of the cloth. He is a very two-fisted sort of priest in a way. Uh, he fancies himself a descendant of the ancient Spartans. And so uh, he's determined that, you know, the Romans should rearm themselves and they should, shouldn't allow people to be loafing about, you know, these, the sports stadiums anymore, that everyone should take up arms. And it's the opposite of what Aristides was praising a couple of centuries earlier. So it is interesting that those ideas were, in fact, being tossed around, you know, uh, more than a thousand years ago. And so people keep building walls and cities keep falling. And you spend some time talking about, you know, we've talked about some of the the various groups that are barbarian groups that have assailed these civilizations, but none of them really held a candle to Genghis Khan, who truly brings these a lot of these civilizations down finally. But jumping forwards a bit, I want to bring us right up to the um, the siege of Constantinople in 1453. And suddenly there is, you know, regardless of who it is attacking these walls, suddenly there is a technology that is going to make these walls more redundant. Right. So cannons had been around before 1453. And, you know, um, uh, you know they've been in use uh, since the 1300s. But, you know, the early cannons were small and not particularly effective. So in 1453, uh, the Turkish uh, leader, uh, Mehmed II, is fulfilling a lifelong goal. 
of taking the city of Constantinople uh, from the Christians. And so he ends up being able to hire a Hungarian foundryman whose name was Orban. Uh, and Orban had, in fact, offered his services as a cannon maker to you know, the last emperor of Constantinople, Constantine XI. Uh, and Constantine couldn't pay him or couldn't pay him enough. So you know, he's a, something of a mercenary, and, and uh, he sells his services to uh, Mehmed II. And then he begins work on this enormous cannon that he is designing to bring down the walls of Constantinople, which have stood for more than a thousand years and have twice held off enormous Arabic armies. I spend months working on it. Ironically, they're doing this in uh, a city about 100 miles away from Constantinople called Adrianople, which is you know, the ancient city of Hadrian. So the city of the great wall builder is now going to give birth to the destroyer of walls. And the destroyer of walls is one heck of a bronze cannon. It fires balls that are seven foot in uh, circumference and can fire them over a mile. And so it was uh, largely due to the constant bombardment of that cannon that the the walls of Constantinople finally fell. And I, I tell that story in the book because, well, partly because it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a good story, but partly because I think it was a real turning point where, you know, as I say, civilization's oldest security blanket is, is, is at last being torn away and, and walls are, you know, at the beginning of the end of their, uh, their usefulness in warfare. And yet they never really go away. And bringing us right up to date, obviously there's a there's a chapter in the book on the Berlin Wall, for instance, perhaps a, you know a wall that was more effective as a as a symbol than as an actual physical object. But right up to today, you know there are walls being built in Palestine and across Europe. And I was in Calais uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you know witnessing the barriers that are built up around the port back into the UK to keep people from traveling and you know i've only read about that neil uh i mean uh, what's what's the status of it now i mean it's it's just obscene as you are coming back from the city of calais to the port to get the ferry across miles away miles away from the port the road either side has walls and fences I, I don't know how high i can't i can't guess but you know with rolls and rolls of barbed wire all the way up to the port i mean it's 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 a serious operation it, re- it really is okay yeah i haven't seen that so you, you it sounds like sort of an eyesore no, absolutely, yeah. And I, I've actually, I've seen the wall in, um, I've been to Israel and seen the wall there as well that was going up around, you know, the entrance to the West Bank. That sort of concrete, you know, very quick to build, huge like concrete slabs that are put in. And so I guess the obvious other one to, you know, the other person to talk to here to finish it off is, you know, Donald Trump and his his mad but obviously, um, you know, deeply held belief in the ability to build a wall across America's southern border. Oh, my gosh. I, I thought if I crossed the Atlantic, I could finally escape the Trump questions. <laughs> I mean, just, a word gets out, huh? Okay. So I'll be honest, I, I'm not expecting that wall ever, uh, ever to be to be built, to be honest. They've, they've started some prototypes. Uh, I don't know how uh, closely you follow our, our politics over here, but, you know, he's two years into his term at this point, roughly. And, uh, and we're holding midterm elections. And usually I think um, if a president is going to 
carry out a major initiative. You know, he tries to do it in the first year or or year or two of his first term. And uh, after that, things tend to slow down quite a bit. So I was a little bit surprised. It it never seemed like Trump was was pushing very hard for this wall uh, once he was elected. And I know that some of his supporters viewed this as a bit of a bait and switch, but... um, you know, it, it's almost as if he waxes waxes hot and cold on this issue. Um, and so, you know, now he's talking about, you know, when to start it up again. But we don't really even know what Congress is going to look like in a few weeks. So my hunch, you know, if, if, if I was a betting man, is that we're probably not ever going to see that wall. Well, I think that's a, that's a positive point for us to to end on. So I've been talking to David Fry. We've been talking about his new book, Walls, A History of Civilization in Blood and Brick, which is out in the UK now from Faber and Faber. David, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Uh, Thank you for having me on your show, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.